And I want to submit to you this morning that what we find in John chapter 3 concerns the world's greatest truth because there is no greater truth than salvation. If you've met Christ, if you've genuinely been saved, and I asked you, what is the single most important decision of your life? You would say without stutter or stammer, the day I was saved. And if that's the most important decision in your history, that's the most important thing that you could share with another individual. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy in 2001, which focus on evangelizing. Pastor Carl has two questions for us that we will explore today. First, is it necessary to have the second birth in order to get into heaven? And second, on a scale of 0 to 100, how sure are you that you have been born again? Today's sermon is entitled, Sharing Christ with Others. We will be in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 1 now, as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you are a visitor here, we believe that every single word that we read in the Holy Scripture is inspired by God. That's what Jesus taught. In fact, he built a case for his deity on the tense of a verb. He said the smallest letter and the smallest mark was inspired by God Almighty. And that's why we do expositional preaching here. We don't just discuss concepts. We look at word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just finished a book of the Bible, and God willing, before fall ends, we plan to begin an Old Testament book. But right now I'm in a series on basic evangelism, why it is that we as Christians need to share our faith. Christ has given every born-again, blood-bought, child of God, a commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's not just for professionals like myself. It's for everyone who names the name of Christ. As you go, literally, as you go where? As you go everywhere you go, make converts, make disciples. That's the thought of the word, not do discipleship. Make disciples, make converts of all peoples, all nations. God's not a respecter of persons, neither should we. Rich, poor, black, white, yellow, brown, doesn't matter. If they move, then they are people that we should attempt to share Christ with if God opens that door. Now, He is going to fulfill His great commission with or without us. The question is, how faithful will we be? So we began this series by discussing sharing Christ courageously, and we looked at the persecution the early church experienced because they spoke truth. And listen, as we move into the end of the age, things will not get easier. They'll get more difficult. Sin will increase, Jesus said, and persecution will grow. And there are many nations of the world today. I had two missionaries contact me this week in two countries. They said, please, we beg you, pray for us, Pastor Carl. We are under great persecution. My heart bleeds, and I think, you know, that might wake up the American church that's so lethargic. And I believe tougher times are in front of us. So we need to share Christ courageously. Secondly, then we looked at sharing Christ consistently. And we, look at a de- we looked at a deacon by the name of Philip, who later was deemed Philip the Evangelist. 
And he saw the need not just to share with the masses, but to share with individuals. For when the scripture says, for God so loved the world, the world is made up of you and me and individuals. And God sees each and every person as valuable in his sight. And so we need to consistently share and look for opportunities and be sensitive to the spirit of God as that man was. Then if you were here last week, we spoke about sharing Christ in the spirit. Then unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit, for it's the word of God and the spirit of God that come in union with one another. And so God uses a human agent. He doesn't write the word on the sky and in the clouds. He uses us to share it. And as we are filled with the Spirit, the two parents in conversion, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, bring about a second birth. Today we're addressing the subject of sharing Christ with others. And then next week I'll finish this series. Maybe it's the most important message in the whole series, sharing Christ in the last days. Now, today we want to speak about sharing Christ, and we're going to use a text of Scripture, John 3.16. It's, in many ways, the greatest verse in all the Bible. It's certainly the most quoted, the most memorized verse in all the Bible. And yet many Christians don't really understand the meaning of the verse and its context. And I believe every born-again Christian should have at least one section of Scripture apart from the Roman road, and would you like to know God as your friend, one section of Scripture that you can walk another individual through to share Christ. And this is, I suppose, the classic text in all of the Bible, because it speaks about being born again. If you're live streaming, our friends here have a bulletin, and those who have this bulletin, you'll see there are two questions that we're going to explore this morning. The first question asks, if it is necessary to have the second birth in order to get to heaven— then on a scale of zero to 100, how sure are you that you've been born again? Jesus said, you must, you must, you must. Three times over, you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. So how sure are you? I want to ask you, wherever you may be, just to mark it out physically or at least in the margin of your mind. Now, saying you're 100 doesn't mean it's true. Jesus speaks of a great multitude at the end of time who have a false assurance, who are convinced they're going to heaven, that everything is right, but he'll say to them, I never, I never met you. Second question is equally important. If you were to stand before God knowing that you must be born again in order to enter his kingdom, and God asks you to explain how it is that one is born twice, what precisely would you say? What would you say to an individual? Write down your answer. Just think it for a moment. If nothing else, hold your answer because I want you to take your answer and put it into the mirror of Scripture. Being born again is the central topic of John chapter 3, and it's key to understanding the love of God because when you're born again, the love of the Holy Spirit is poured out into your heart. And God becomes real in a new and a profound way, and you become a new creation. Now, we're going to examine 21 verses, but to give us kind of a feel for the text, I want to read just verses 16 through 21. Follow along. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor. The Scripture is on the screen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, I hope you remember the occasion of these words. Jesus had done his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, and then he uh, went through Capernaum for a few days, and then he ends up in Jerusalem where he does a whole multiplicity of miracles. And there's a rich, religious, well-known, respected leader by the name of Nicodemus who's been observing what Jesus had done. He had seen the incredible authority in which Jesus cleansed the temple. He cleansed it twice in his public ministry, once in the beginning and then at the end of his public ministry just before the crucifixion. So he's thinking, this one who comes with great authority, this one who comes with great signs, is it possible that he is indeed the Messiah? And I want to submit to you this morning that what we find in John chapter 3 concerns the world's greatest truth, because there is no greater truth than salvation. If you've met Christ, if you've genuinely been saved, and I asked you, what is the single most important decision of your life, you would say without stutter or stammer, the day I was saved. And if that's the most important decision in your history, that's the most important thing that you could share with another individual. The greatest text, without a doubt, unfolding for us the greatest truth that will lead to the greatest test. So the greatest text is our need to be born again. The greatest truth is how it happens. And then the test, is it true or is it just verbiage? You can know the plan of salvation without ever having met the man of salvation. And there'll be a great multitude, many, Jesus said at the end, who did all kinds of things in his name, and he will say, I never knew you. So let's get started with the world's greatest truth, the world's greatest truth. Notice how the chapter opens, verse 1 begins, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is identified to us as a Pharisee. Pharisee, it's a word that actually literally means a separated one. And they were separated in their observance of the law, the way they uh, washed their hands and practiced certain cleansing issues, the diet they ate, tithing, and especially Sabbath observance. The Pharisees was a brotherhood of Jewish men that went from about the second century BC, and they were obliterated, and their ministry, so to speak, was ended in 70 AD. 70 AD, of course, is the year that Titus Vespucian came and destroyed the temple. They're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has four of the men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they're looking at the marvel of the temple. And Jesus said, a day is coming when one stone won't stand upon another. When I take people to Jerusalem, I take them to one spot. Actually, there's a rock there that says, to the trumpeter. This is the place where the Jewish man would blow the trumpet. They found that right at the base along with all these stones where literally one stone had not stood upon another. These were temple stones from the Herodian temple. And of course, that ended these people, so there have been no Pharisees since, at least not in the strict sense. I'm sure they're still with us today. But he's a Pharisee, and he's deemed here a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 70 members plus the high priest. So he's one of 71. And it was a very prestigious group. It would be equated to being a member of the Supreme Court in our country. They ruled over all the Jewish affairs 
for all the Jews in the world. And he comes on behalf of the Pharisees. We know that you've come from God. So he is acknowledging that he is coming in a representative way about other Pharisees. We read here at verse 2, this man came to him, notice, by night. A lot of ink spilt on those two words, by night. Some say, well, he came by night because that was the time he might have a private conversation because Jesus was always surrounded by masses of people. Some say he came by night because it's hot during the day and it's much better to have a long protracted conversation when it's cool. Some say he came by night because he feared the fact that people might see him as a Jewish leader speaking with this man from Nazareth. Some say he came by night because he was tired of counting sheep, so he went and spoke directly to the shepherd. Maybe he just means by night as a historical fact. We don't know. So I want to hear these preachers and say, let me tell you why he came by night. We don't know. That's called eisegesis when we read into the text. But what we do know is that he came with an open, teachable, searching heart. And he's wanting to speak about signs, semion, or you could render it miracles. John uses this word, semion. It's a miracle with a message. And he selects seven signs, apart from the resurrection, that he records. And at the end of his gospel, he says, these things have been written. Though Jesus did many other miracles, the ones I've written have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. So he wants to talk about miracles. And Jesus wants to talk about the new birth. But in one sense, he doesn't really change the subject because the greatest miracle is indeed the new birth. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so this dialogue runs all the way through verse 10, where three times he's told that if he wants to see, it's a word that means to understand, if he wants to perceive the kingdom of God, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, then he must be born again. George Whitfield was a great 18th century pastor, and for a segment of his life, he stopped pastoring, served as an evangelist, and went back to pastoring. But whether it was in the pulpit or traveling, as kind of the Billy Graham of his day, one person came to him one day and said, Mr. Whitfield, all you ever do is speak about the need to be born again. You always preach on the need to be born again. Why do you preach on the need to be born again? He said, because you must be born again. <laughs> and here's the, the, the king preacher, God himself, teaching us of our need to be born again. And that word again is a, a Greek word that has a dual nuance. As you have the marginal notes with the NASB, you could translate it from above. It has both senses. One who is born from above or born a second time. You have to choose one word, so depending on your translation, they chose one of those two ways. Look at verse 4. Look at his response to what Jesus just said. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, all children are a wonderful miracle of the handiwork of God, and no sooner do they come into this world do they make themselves known. But while they are very much alive physically, the Bible describes them as being dead spiritually. Do you remember what Adam was told in Genesis chapter 2? God said, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, and in Hebrew it's emphatic, it would be like underlining it in red or highlighting it, like in the very day 
that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, they ate, but it didn't appear that they died. But we know God can't lie. And the word death is the Hebrew word muth, and it means to separate or to sever or to kill. They did die that day. They died instantly on the inside. That intimacy with God was lost. And to illustrate in the spiritual realm what was unfolding in the physical realm, among other things, and for different reasons, God put them outside of the garden and put two holy angels with a flaming sword of fire so they could no longer come back into the cool of garden and walk and talk with God. They died on the inside. They were in shame that day and guilt. Where are you? God asked. God knows everything. Whenever God asks a question, it's only, of course, to reveal. And he was revealing that there was a huge problem. They began to die that day physically. They began to age. And so now we're born dying. We're getting older and older and older, and we're headed towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this world, we die a third kind of death. Beyond spiritual and physical, there's eternal death. That's why you must be born again. If you've only been born once, you will die twice, first physically, then eternally. It's called the second death, where a person is forever separated from God in the lake of fire. And so Nicodemus, in essence, says, I don't understand. You know, there's no reverse gear in terms of life. How can someone be born twice? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of our Catholic friends say this is a reference to baptism. Unless you're baptized and born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Look, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. We know it doesn't mean that. You say, how so? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What's the gospel? that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said, I did not come to preach the gospel, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, he separated baptism from the gospel. Some say, well, this is an allusion to the Word of God, and certainly water sometimes is used as an allusion to Scripture. And in that sense, you know, we're born of the Word of God. You're not born of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God through a life-giving sperma, but we're also born again of the Spirit. While that's true, that certainly is not what this text is teaching, not contextually. Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. How can you be born a second time physically? And Jesus responds, you must be born of water. That's your first birth. Mom's water breaks. Out comes before long a beautiful baby. And you must be born a second time. You must be born of the Spirit. Now, not to see, but notice to enter. So if you want to see spiritual truth and you want to enter into God's kingdom, you must be born again. So Jesus is basically saying, let me explain to you about this physical and spiritual birth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. That's the physical birth. And as you know, the word flesh or sarks, is sometimes used to describe the skin that covers your skeleton, but most of the time in the New Testament, it's used to describe the fallen sinful nature within. Some of the newer translations, they translate the word socks, not as flesh as traditionally, but they just write two words, sinful nature. It's interpretive, but it's certainly correct. 
He's just reminding us all that the flesh can produce is fleshly fallen life. And so we send an Adam. So what can we produce? Little Adams. When Adam sinned, the whole world sinned, Romans 5 and verse 12. So you can't blame your sin on Adam. We're born by nature, by birth, by choice, sinners. If you're a sinner, say amen. I don't look so holy. I mean, say amen. You know, yeah, we're all sinners. We are. If you don't believe me, ask your wife. She'll tell you. But here's the point. In the book of Genesis, over and over and over again, God says they produce after their kind. Cats don't produce dogs. Monkeys don't produce men, though some would have you to believe that. We produce after our own kind. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. King David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying he is sinful because he was born out of wedlock. He is saying that from the point of conception, I was a sinner. And by the way, in this world of throwaway babies, this generation needs to understand that life doesn't begin at birth. So there's a platform in one of our parties that says you can murder the baby up until the day the baby is born. Now, I cannot support that. I never will. And in this day of throwaway children, we need to affirm what God says, that he weaves the life together in the womb and that life begins at the moment of conception. That's what the Scripture affirms, and this week is an important week because our Supreme Court will look at two cases that potentially could have a huge ramification on Roe v. Wade nationally. So contrary to the evolutionary thought of our day that would skirt our linkage to Adam, listen to what Paul said in Acts 17. And he, God, has made from one man, if you have, again, the NASB with marginal notes, it says from one blood, he has made from one man or one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Now, the races came at the Tower of Babel. We all looked pretty much the same before Babel. But then, because of a man's rebellion against God, God confused them. Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. And he split them up into language groups. When you marry within your language groups, you begin to develop specific features. It might be slanted eyes, upward, downward, different colors of skin. But we're all related. We all go back to our original parents, Adam and Eve. And because we sinned in Adam, you see it in children. You don't have to teach a three-year-old to be selfish. You have to teach that little boy or girl to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old how to lie. You have to teach him to tell the truth. You say, well, he learned that behavior from someone else. Well, he may have, but I tell you, your child can be just as creative as my children were. They can come up with some things all by themselves. Look, if you raise them remote control, with a remote control, they would still be a little sinner. We are a sinner by nature, by birth, by choice. And so this is the teacher of Israel. He knew verses like Isaiah 59, 2, that our sin has separated us. He knew verses like Ezekiel 18, that uh, the soul that sins must die. He knew those verses like we know Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Here's the problem illustrated. On one side, we have God who is holy. Next slide, thank you. And on the other side, we have man who is sinful. 
Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. And all of us have felt the shame and guilt and separation that that sin brings. And we often try to correct it on our own. We think, well, good works, following a particular religion, a certain philosophy or moral code. Basically, all the religions of the world, with the exception of biblical Christianity, and I say biblical because not all Christianity is biblically oriented, but they all teach that man through his own merit can reach God. Jesus is going to unfold that problem for Nicodemus and show him why that's impossible. Proverbs twice over in the 14th and in the 16th chapter, God only does that a couple times in all the Proverbs where he repeats himself twice, for there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And so our salvation, our ticket into heaven, into the kingdom of God, is we must be born from above. Again, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth, your physical birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your birth from above. That's your second birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Physical birth is one thing. A spiritual birth is something entirely different. And Jesus knows that if you're going to go to heaven, you must be born again. So for this reason, Jesus tells Nicodemus, look at verse 7, do not be amazed, don't marvel, don't be blown away that I said to you, you must be born again. He's showing him his greatest need if he wants to be included in the kingdom of God. You say, well, pastor, I don't totally understand the second birth. Well, neither do I. There's a certain mystery to it. Now, I'm going to tell you in a second how you can get it and how you can enjoy it, but I don't fully understand it. Look what Jesus said, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not by accident that the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit is identical. Somewhat of a play on words that Jesus is giving us. It's a powerful comparison. Both are invisible, neither can be controlled by man, and to this day, science admits it doesn't fully understand the wind. Yet the work of the wind, the effects of the wind, the work of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit can be seen by all. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, tell me where the wind comes from and where it goes. You hear it, you feel it, but you don't understand it. So don't try to figure all this out. And by the way, he adds, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. They don't understand us. We're like the mystery of the wind. Why? Because a natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't comprehend them. Why? Because they're spiritually comprehended or understood. So you get saved, and all of a sudden your friend says, what's wrong with him? What happened to him? He's different. I don't like the, the difference. Sometimes they like it. Sometimes they don't. Now, I can't fully understand it, but again, I can tell you from what Jesus said how you can get it and how you can enjoy the benefits. But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, look, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven and there's the kingdom of the condemned. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom that will land you in heaven and there is a kingdom that will land you in hell. There is no in-between. Please join us tomorrow for part two as Pastor Carl continues his sermon on how to share Christ with others. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 
Sharing Christ with Others 021. If you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.